feel like I've seen you two a lot over the past like week and a half. Yeah. It's nice. I'm fed up of it. <gasps> yeah, that's valid. I understand that. I love you. Whatever you need to do to recover from hanging out with us. That's okay. <laughs> I love you too. And play theme song. I wish I could do that in real life, just any social situation. Just be like, <laughs> enough of that theme song. <laughs> Welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the podcast where we learn anything and everything interesting. We do three things every time, right? (laughs) We do. You know, I'm saying with us. You know, we do a big main science topic. We answer a science question and we do a miscellaneous topic. It's not to do with science. Sometimes it is because we can't help ourselves. We have problems. I'm Ella. Got a problem. Too much science. <laughs> I am Ella, and today's main science topic is gravitational waves. Oh, Ooh. hell yeah! Let's go! Let's go! I'm so curious. I was hoping you would be enthusiastic about this, Tom, because if I slip up at any point, um, hopefully you can jump in. <laughs> I've done some background research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I definitely don't know the history, and I'm also sure there's a lot I've missed, so I'm very excited. My name is Caroline, and this episode's question topic is, what is the loneliest animal on the planet? Oh. Holy shit! Me. Before I met you guys. <laughs> I knew that that joke was going to be said at some point. I got to get them episode, all out. Tom, I, I'm kind of disappointed that you got it out of you so quickly, to be oh, honest. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be said many times today. That's such a good question and sad question. That's a really interesting question. It's an intriguing one, isn't it? Yeah. I'm very curious how to answer. I'm, oh, I'm yeah. excited. Yeah. My name's Tom, and today's miscellaneous topic is... Graffiti. Ooh, okay. Some stories of really old and new graffiti and the the strange philosophical questions that come from such a strange art form. I, yeah, that's cool. Ooh. There's so much to be said about it. I'm interested yeah. to see where you go. There's we're gonna we're gonna cover a lot, but it's it's definitely something that like I went into it like, oh yeah, I know about this. And then as I dug mm-hmm. deeper, I was like Oh, there's there's some really so wild stuff much. here. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. This is gonna be so much fun. Oh my god. And we have a quick um little correction corner today. Corrections for a corner. Previous corrections, corrections corner. corner. Corrections corner. Woo. That was great. That has right. to be the jingle now. Thank Lovely. you. Yeah. I'm just so talented. So we have a corrections <laughs> corner from episode 39. Thank you very much, Estralda, for this corrections corner. This is from episode 39 where we were talking about the pill. I mentioned that the pill can make your body think that you're pregnant, which is not correct. It's also a very, very common misconception. So I thought that we would, it's extra important to highlight it in this one. I think it's been removed from the episode now, but I did just want to say your body is just responding to the hormones that are in the pill. It's not that the hormones in the pill trick your body into thinking that you're pregnant. They just keep your hormones at a level where you don't ovulate and all that other good stuff that Caroline mentioned in the episode. Uh, But it's different than your body thinking it's pregnant. And I will also add a correction corner for episode 41, where I talked about eliminating mosquitoes. Um, I said and defending myself of the bat based on scientific articles not scientific articles but like a um, lot of places a lot of places uh, like reputable places saying that mosquitoes have been the biggest killer 
ever and had a figure for that. Yeah, I think I think the specific stat was that they're responsible for half of all human deaths in history. Uh, and, and thank you to Eleanor for pointing this out. Tracing that back, it doesn't appear to be true. Or if it is true, there is no good source for it. Mosquitoes have killed a lot of people. It doesn't detract the point that they are yeah. truly deadly, but there's yeah. no reason to say a thing that might not be correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So don't, if you were like going to go out and use that as a as a hot fact, don't, because it's not necessarily Lots true. Lots of other reasons to hate those people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so today's main topic is gravitational waves. I know from the intro that Tom knows what these are. Caroline, can you take a guess? What what a gravitational wave is, yeah. A wave of gravity. <laughs> is that even close? I, I mean, more, yeah, I mean, more or less. <laughs> Brilliant, <laughs> stunning, amazing. I feel like I understand what gravity is as a concept. Like, and like the bigger an object's mass is, the more gravity it has, and all of those things. But I don't know if I could tell We're you gonna get what specifically that. a gravitational wave is. So this is really interesting. If you're really into physics, like co on a cosmological scale already, I don't know if and a lot of this will be new to you. But as someone who isn't, mm -hmm. this was a very helpful topic for me to learn some basics that are very cool still. Ooh. So a gravitational wave. I'm not even gonna ask Tom because I know he knows. <laughs> Gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time caused by the most violent and energetic processes in the universe. What those are, we will get into later. So they, they are invisible and they travel at the speed of light. But as they pass, they change the distance between objects by squeezing and stretching space-time like a wave. If you can imagine a wave rolling over. I gotta say, Ella, I you are right that like if I probably if you gave me like 10 minutes, I probably could have written something like that. But man, there's with all of this space stuff, there's so much something so great about hearing just like a one sentence descriptor yeah. of everything and being like, holy <laughs> shit, like yeah. what? <laughs> like, like all of those things back to back. It's mind yeah. blowing. It's absolutely mind blowing. Yeah. Could you could you say that definition again for me? Because yeah. I feel like I've just got to wrap my head around it a little that, bit. Yeah, absolutely. It, it will become clearer as we go through mm -hmm. more and more because we're going to break down the history of this. So gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time caused by the most violent and energetic processes in the universe. They travel at the speed of light and as they pass, they change the distance between objects by squeezing and stretching space-time. Wow. Okay. okay. Yeah. They have the potential to tell us things about our universe that we would not otherwise be able to know, but we will get into mm. all of that later on. Ooh. Because first, we need to understand what gravitation gravity actually is. Yeah. Mm. Because we have been looking for gravitational waves for a long time. Oh. That I'm less familiar with. I'm very curious about sort of the... because. You know, it, it in in some ways it's we're amazed by it, but we it does kind of like make some intuitive sense that like like I, I feel like we grew up with the the experiment with like the tarp right, and you put like a heavy object in, and then it like pulls stuff in. So like the idea of like little ripples, it doesn't seem too far fetched, but I'm sure it took a lot of scientific progress to yes. come to this. Mm, uh, a lot. So yeah, a lot. Yeah, I don't know if Aristotle how he would feel about uh, invisible waves at the speed of light changing the distance between every yeah. single object in space. Yeah. <laughs> So Albert Einstein predicted the existence of gravitational waves in 1915 in his theory of okay. general relativity. 1915? Yeah. Wow. So I'm wow. going to assume you've heard of Einstein's general theory of relativity. <laughs> heard of? Could I tell you what it is? 
Probably not. Is that is that is that the E equals M T square one? Oh, is that that one? That's part of it, certainly. Oh. It's a lot of mass. There's a lot of mass in the theory of general relativity. I'm not gonna get into the nitty-gritty of it because A, I can't. I don't understand it. <laughs> but also it's very boring and hard to explain. That's so valid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But essentially the general theory of relativity explains the phenomenon of gravity, mostly used on the massive scales of stars and planets. Mm. The idea is this. Space-time is a conceptual model which combines the three dimensions of space with the fourth dimension of time. So it can be thought oh, of boy. as a fabric in which all the objects of the universe are embedded. Okay. okay. According to general relativity, mass, like the mass of the Earth, for example, causes a curvature in space-time. Like what you were saying before, you imagine ah. putting a ball on a piece of fabric and it the fabric stretching around it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, that's such a useful way of like visualizing it because everything you said before that point, I was a bit like, right, okay, yes, sure. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then you said that of like, you just yeah. imagine it as like a like a, your bedding and your cat is sat in the middle yeah. of it and there's like dish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the bigger the object, the deeper the curve. Mm -hmm. So planets orbit and objects fall because they are following the path of space-time caused by this distortion of mass. Got okay. It. And yeah. So this is the the thing that takes a second to like for me to pro or for me to click was like that that is the theory is that that is gravity. Like mm -hmm. like it's not that that's like one way to think of it is like that is actually like because I feel like when we think of gravity it's like you know it's just like oh, you think of the pull between two objects. Yeah. But instead, this idea is that gravity isn't that it's this pull in the 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 fabric yeah or the the the, the space itself rather than mm, some mm -hmm. other invisible force pulling them together the fabric is the force there are other ways to explain gravity like newton's law mm. yeah which that also works in a different way mm. but for massive scale this is generally a better way to yeah. explain it it's sort of like the idea of like imagining atoms as like single points it's like for the for 99 percent of cases that's perfectly fine it's only when you get to like nuclear physics and stuff like that where it's like okay we need to start thinking about them as more than just dots yeah that's all you need to know about this because cool. Along these lines, Einstein predicted that massive accelerating objects like neutron stars would disrupt space-time, causing ripples or waves that would propagate across space-time from the source in all directions. Uh, so kind of like if you drop like a penny in a lake, it causes all of these ripples That's out very from good. it. It's, it, it's that same thing, but yeah. on this fabric yes. instead. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but basically Einstein was like, hey, not only are there pennies out there, they're like fucking bowling balls, like yeah. enormous yeah. bowling balls. Like a dropping a bowling ball in a, in a pond kind of thing. Yeah. And as these waves go outwards, you know, like a, a wave would, it's coming together and apart. So it's stretching mm. and squeezing space-time as they go. Those are gravitational waves. Got it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. And although he predicted them mathematically, Einstein spent his entire life flip-flopping on whether or not they were actually real. Oh, wow. Okay. Really? He himself? Yeah. So in 1963, he oh. wrote to his friend, renowned physicist Max Born, together with a young collaborator who, who is Rosen, I arrive at the interesting result that gravitational waves do not exist. <gasps> he just fully just out and said that. Wow. By the end of Einstein's life, I mean, Rosen never came to believe in gravitational waves. By the end of his life, Einstein was again convinced that they existed mm -hmm. as more than just a mathematical construct. But he never, he wasn't alive long enough to see them 
actually found. Yeah. Oh, oh wow. gosh. Wow. He was he was writing messages like this is is this is stupid, right? Like grab yeah. that, that, that's <laughs> stupid, right? Unless ah JK. Unless is it no no never mind ah, I'm good. ah eh, and then he stuck his tongue out like he always does. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Awful tongue. <laughs> I'm not going to be withholding for the sake of drama. We have discovered gravitational waves. They are real. About a hundred years, actually, after Einstein first predicted them as the first direct measurements we had. That's so wild. But it took, you know, decades of work, hundreds of scientists and many incremental steps along the way. And those Mm -hmm. incremental Mm -hmm. steps are actually their own massive discoveries and achievements in their own right. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. So I want everyone to be aware as, as I kind of breeze past some truly astonishing things, <laughs> they are incredible, even if I'm making them sound like they're not for the sake of the, yeah. <laughs> what we're doing. <laughs> so one such discovery on the path to gravitational waves was by Jocelyn Bell and Anthony Hewish in 1967. They discovered something called the pulsar. Do you know what a pulsar is? <gasps> yeah. No. Go on, Tom. I gotta say, I I think it was Astro Kirsten finally said it in a way that made sense the other day. Um, is it right that a pulsar is literally just it, it, the name comes from pulsing star? Yeah. <gasps> oh, fun. So it's a type of late stage star that is super, super, super dense, but it's also like ejecting a huge beam, basically, of of energy from its poles. Uh, and I also know they spin very fast. So as it's spinning, it's basically like a huge flashlight on either pole, right? And so as it's spinning, it pulses. And that's something that we can measure. Is that right? It, that's like most of the way there. Cool. So pulsars are very, very fast spinning neutron stars. So neutron stars are when a medium-sized star reaches the end of its life. So they've collapsed mm-hmm. into supernovas. And this is like the incredibly dense high energy core that's left over. They're really small. It's called a neutron star, I believe, because it is like mostly composed of neutrons. neutrons. Yes, that's why. Which is wild yeah. to think of. Like there's so much mass that it's just decimated all of these materials into just raw neutrons. Yeah. It's just, it's just so metal. And it's crazy how condensed this is because they're th- about 30 kilometers in radius, which is exceptionally small <laughs> for a star. So wow. that's yeah. very, very dense. And when I say they spin fast, I mean fucking fast. (laughs) (laughs) The fastest spinning pulsar we know of spins 716 times per second. (gasps) Holy shit. Oh my God. So the important thing about them in the context we're discussing is that they blast out pulses of radiation at regular intervals, like Tom was saying. Got it. Radiation. Well, it's light. It is light. It's an electromagnetic radiation, either in seconds or milliseconds. And this is because they have this really strong magnetic field at their poles, but then the, mm. that's not aligned with the axis that they spin on. Oh. oh. So the way, th- I don't un- quite understand the uh, process here, but it essentially means that they produce two very powerful beams of light from either end, like Tom was saying. But we only see, it doesn't pulse. That's what we used to think. We used to think it mm. was flashing on and off. But the reason is oh, right. when the light is facing Earth, we see it. And when it's not facing Earth, of we course. don't see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and because it's so fast, it looks like yeah. it's flashing or pulsing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, because when you when you're looking at it with an old timey telescope, it's just yeah. you just see this a flickering. Yeah. When in actuality, it's more like a, a a top that's spinning kind of off axis. Yeah. If you look at if you go and look like Google a video of how they spin, that's really wild. It's the kind of way the the light is spinning. It's not like a lighthouse because. 
these are often called cosmic lighthouses. Okay. As you kind of see the light depending on their orientation. Mm -hmm. Mm. Oh, yeah. The light that pulsars emit is essential for seeing gravitational waves in a specific way. But we will get to that later because we're going chronologically. Okay. Yeah. So the discover of pulsars was followed up in 1974 by a discovery by Joseph Taylor and Russell Hulse, who discovered the binary pulsar. So they discovered a binary star system composed of a pulsar in orbit around another neutron star. Oh, wow. Oh, that's crazy. This high energy system is exactly the kind of thing that general relativity predicted should radiate gravitational waves. Oh, right. Okay. Is the idea because it's just like, it's two fucking bowling balls basically spinning around and that's massive because the idea is that gravitational waves are like, super 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 tiny and minute no i mean they're not they they do eventually become very small (laughs) they're not they don't start that way but we'll get into that at the source they're incredibly large (laughs) oh yeah yeah yeah. but but just that like it would take something enormous and massive for us to be able to see it here because by the time they reach us they're much much smaller because like a dropping a bomb into the ocean where you get the huge waves really near the source by the time it washes up on the beach you're seeing yes okay just the ripples we're on the beach and we're we're hoping to find through our telescope on the edge of the lake two huge bowling balls that would actually cause a ripple that would reach us yeah exactly okay okay that's the problem that we're facing and einstein's on this beach and he's like Guys, I'm pretty sure if we try hard enough, there will be two bowling balls there. No, Einstein was like, he mathematically predicted that someone had dropped two bowling balls into the lake. (laughs) 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 You know? Yeah, yeah, he's not even looking at the lake. Um, Which is one of the reasons why Rosa never believed that gravitational waves could exist. And even up to his death, Einstein was like, I'm not sure we'll ever find them or if they'll be useful because they had just mathematically predicted them. So these, we're now getting to the point where people are starting to see them for the first time. Mm. So knowing that this binary pulsar was the kind of thing that could produce gravitational waves, the scientists began tracking the radio emissions from the stars over many years to see if the orbital period, so the time it took these two stars to orbit each other, changed over time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they eventually were able to report that the stars got close together, a tiny, Mm -hmm. tiny minuscule amount, meaning that gravitational waves were causing space-time to contract. So they were closer together. Right. Okay. Whoa. So they are radiating gravitational waves. So like the amount that they're getting closer to each other only makes sense if gravitational waves are real. So with gravitational waves, when stars produce gravitational waves or when anything produces gravitational waves, it is carrying Mm -hmm, energy mm -hmm. away from the system. Mm -hmm. (gasps) So it's causing the orbit to get closer together. No fucking way whoa at the very basic level so that the gravitational waves aren't affecting it themselves but it's causing the orbit to get closer okay so they could tell that it was radiating gravitational waves by the fact that the orbit got closer together over time whoa in 1993 Hulse and taylor actually received the nobel prize in physics for the discovery of this pulsar oh wow Hell yeah. that could open up the new study of gravitation and we kind of knew that gravitational waves were real from this but this was not a direct measurement of gravitational waves. Mm-hmm. And to, for the bowling ball metaphor, this is like seeing the bowling balls fall, but not seeing anything on our beach. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like we know that all the way, all the way over there, they're causing waves, but we haven't actually measured it yet. Exactly. You can't see the waves at the beach yet, but you can see that the bowling balls are closer together. So they should be yeah. producing those waves, but we can't see them yet. 
Oh, right. This okay. Is, this is wild how just like the the it, it also just makes Einstein's theory that much more wild that he was correct in this prediction. It's like the I gotta say this Einstein guy, he's a real he's a real Einstein. He's pretty <laughs> smart. But um just to be like, cause I assume his theory, like he had to have had some concept of like how these stars formed and then orbit and then create like it's a whole it's not even that he had to have a lot of information on how stars already worked he used maths to predict how stars would act oh wow that's so yeah. cool wow and then we later oh, discovered it dang. that's one of the things that oh, is so cool about all so... of these discoveries that einstein's theories had already predicted them and then we had to find a way to see if that was real i mean he predicted that black holes are real for example and we didn't know they were mm -hmm. god that's so cool <laughs> so the idea that that someone could write something on on a piece of paper in math and then like 50 years later someone's looking around in the sky and they're like holy shit i found it you yeah. know it's kind of like that i yeah. found a math drawing in space is <laughs> like gosh so from this discovery with the binary pulsars there are decades of astronomers studying radio emissions which further confirmed the existence of gravitational waves but we still hadn't seen them we still hadn't detected mm -hmm. them yeah. ourselves until 2015 oh wow yeah. so what like a hundred years after that a hundred years theorized exactly a hundred years afterwards wow with something called ligo yeah so ligo is the the laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory ligo is so fucking cool it's the world's largest gravitational wave observatory operated by caltech and mit an interferometer is basically a really, really precise scientific instrument designed to measure things with extraordinary accuracy. I'm not going to get into the real nuts and bolts of how it works because, again, I don't understand and it's boring. <laughs> I'm sorry. If you, I'm sorry if you find it interesting. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sure it can be interesting, but not in the way I would describe it. I'm going to try and explain in a very basic sense how LIGO works for detecting gravitational waves. I spent about an hour last night talking to my roommate about this. He studied physics at university. And um, as I've already shown Tom and Caroline, I have this piece of paper, which is basically a bunch of scribbles. It's insane. It's like the ramblings <laughs> of a mad person. All physics and no play makes Ella a cool boy. <laughs> will you take a photo of that and share oh, it? Yeah! On the Twitter? <laughs> Twitter. I will take it. <laughs> on Instagram. I'll take a photo and share it on, uh, oh, on Instagram God. because Perfect. it is absolutely bonkers. Um, thank you to my housemate Yono for that. Thanks, thank you, Yono. But we basically finally boiled it down to this. LIGO, first of all, is not an observatory in the traditional sense. It does not detect electromagnetic radiation, i.e. visible light, radio waves, microwaves, mm. whatever. But it does use electromagnetic radiation to make measurements. So you have these two super long, 4.2 kilometer long arms that are at a 90 degree angle from one another. Then at the start of the two arms, an electromagnetic laser is split into two and it travels the same distance down the two arms and then is reflected back. Under normal conditions, the light, the um, radiation will arrive back at the same time. That's it. It goes out and it comes back. Because it's the same laser, oh. it has all the same properties. Oh, I feel like yeah. I... Oh, yeah. Oh. Are you seeing it, Caroline? I'm getting it. Right? If gravitational waves are occurring, causing space-time to expand and contract more in one direction than the other because of the angle it's hitting it at... Caroline is mouth agape. The return time of the waves will be different. Isn't that so fucking cool? <laughs> and this can be detected over time. But also, like, like it's so cool, but also... 
when you explain it like that, I know it's way more complicated than that, but like that is such a simple solution. Just Isn't like it? it's so beautiful, stick two lasers yeah. that way and see if they come back at the same time. And if they don't come back at the same time, something's probably going yeah. on there. Like that makes so much sense. That's so cool. Yeah, I will say like these instruments are amazing. They're amazingly mm-hmm. geniusly thought out. And actually the people who made LIGO won a Nobel Prize for it because of just how incredible it oh, is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. really dumbing it down. Can we, I've got, we got to keep a, a tally of how many Nobel Prizes were involved yeah. in gravitational waves. <laughs> so how many, how many Nobel Prizes needed to happen so that I could see this tweet yeah. of an astronomer saying, like, we got gravitational waves. <laughs> so far, three. Wow. Jesus Christ. I wouldn't be surprised if people I talk about <laughs> at the end of this topic get a Nobel Prize quite soon. Mm-hmm. That, so you kind of understand that it's actually two instruments that are located 3,000 kilometers apart. By having two, that you can mm. confirm that there's actually a gravitational wave occurring and you can confirm the direction it's coming from. Oh, you can triangulate? No, you can't triangulate. You need three. You need three instruments for that. This is just the direction. But if they made another one, they could get a triangulator location. Um, The arms of LIGO's instruments are so long because the the longer they are, the smaller the measurements they can make. Um, LIGO's interferometers are designed to measure a distance of one ten thousandth the width of a proton. I'm sorry, what? Oh my, I can't even comprehend how. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it is incomprehensible. Is. The gravitational waves they detect aren't that small. I think they're about one one hundredth the width of a proton, but they can do. Oh, they're not. They're not that small. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not that small. <laughs> wow. So okay. this this hypersensitivity is necessary because the gravitational waves LIGO is measuring come from the very end of the merging of two black holes. So less than a second from the end of them merging. Wow. So this is this incredibly violent and destructive process that is so far away from us that, like we were saying before, by the time the gravitational waves reach us, they are impossibly small. Yeah. Thousands of billions of times smaller than at the source. But it's also very short is what it sounds like you're saying. It's like a huge clap. Right, that's only just like a single moment. Um, it's lots of waves, but it is just a single okay, moment in yeah, time. Yeah, it's like all like a, like less than a second in time. You do get lots of waves. Okay, okay but cool. it's over this very very short period of time. Mm-hmm. So on September fourteenth, twenty fifteen, at five fifty one a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, LIGO directed <laughs> like a Tuesday. <laughs> LIGO directly detected the first evidence of gravitational waves, confirming Einstein's theory one hundred years later. Wow. wow. Okay, oh it is worth goodness. it is worth saying the exact minute. That is pretty fucking Yeah, gnarly. that's really cool. <laughs> oh, gosh. Because it has to have... It's not just that it, it measured something about the universe. It measured something that we had to have waited to have happened, right? We had to have this camera ready, and then mm. two black holes somewhere had to have merged for us to have captured that image. And yes. so that it's like two amazing things. It is. It is amazing. The, the life... The end of the life cycle of two black holes merging is amazing. But black holes merging, oh? not as uncommon as you think, but we're going to get into that. Really? Ooh, okay. So okay. before we move on to the last kind of discovery, on the source of those waves, those black holes merging, I'm going to read a quote directly from LIGO's website because they explain it really well. Oh, hell yeah. Based on the observed signals, LIGO scientists estimate that the black holes for this event were about 29 and 36 times the mass of the sun. And the event took place <laughs> 1.3 billion years ago. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Say that one more time. Say, say that one more time. It happened when? 1.3 billion years ago. <laughs> wow. I I hate when we measure distances in time. It's it sucks. It's that's so 
metal because because like, if it ha if it happened far away, then it happened in the past. And yeah, that yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. Oh. About three times the mass of the sun was converted into gravitational waves in a fraction of a second. <gasps> whoa, 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 whoa. Mass was converted into gravitational waves. Yes. Well, yeah. The the mass of Gosh. the the energy within within the black holes was converted into gravitational okay, okay, waves. Okay. Yes. Yes. In in a fraction of a second, with a peak power output about fifty times that of the whole visible universe. <laughs> wait! Wait! Whoa! 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 What? So everything we see in the sky. Oh, you're talking about like the observable universe. Everything we are, we have visibly observed. The energy that was released when, during these black holes merging was 50 times the peak energy output by everything that we see. Oh, we we have, that have observed. We could see. Yeah. That's so cool. It's wow. insane. <laughs> so according to general relativity, a pair of black holes orbiting around each other lose energy through the emission of gravitational waves, like what we were talking yes. about with the Whoa. pulsars, yeah. causing them to gradually approach each other over billions of years, and then much more quickly in the final minutes. Mm -hmm. yeah. During the final fraction of a second, two black holes collide into each other at nearly one half the speed of light and form one single more massive black hole. Wow. Wow, okay. So the, they convert a portion of the combined black hole's mass into energy. Which is... E equals mc squared because energy and mass are related. Yes, this is exactly according to Einstein's theory, E Holy equals mc squared. Moly. So the energy is then emitted as a final strong burst of gravitational waves. And it's these that LIGO had observed in 2015. Does that all make sense? It does. And it's so cool. And it's so wild because you're describing this biblical phenomena happening in space one billion years ago mm -hmm. with these immense bodies colliding but then what that results to on earth is literally it's like oh one laser got here a little later than yeah the other. yeah <laughs> yeah oh my goodness yeah and we're not talking like even noticeably <laughs> that much later it's like right. you the, the reason you need these huge arms is to make the tiniest tiniest <laughs> measurement these these aren't like cosmic rays that like can disturb electronics these are this is a ripple that just goes through everything and it's just yeah. like we don't even realize oh, it's unbelievably cool that we can detect this impossibly small contraction of space or expansion of space time from billions of light years away caused by this event hey folks editor tom here because we forgot to mention that while the gravitational waves that reach us are way too tiny to feel you can represent those vibrations as a sound wave as researchers have done and it sounds like this which scientists now call a cosmic chirp. Anyway, back to the show. But this is not the end. I think it gets better. Get out. Because this brings us to 2023. Oh. A few weeks ago, actually. Oh. And something called the International Pulsar Timing Array. So you remember those pulsars, those rapidly mm -hmm. spinning cosmic lighthouses? They're very, very important. So the International Pulsar Timing Array consists of several groups around the world. They use pulsars with that predictable flashing mm -hmm. as their light shines towards Earth as a kind of galactic clock. Okay. So gravitational waves change the distance between objects. And so as a gravitational wave contracts or expands the fabric of space-time, the light from a pulsar will either arrive a little bit early or a little bit late to Earth. Okay, yeah. You seeing it? So by having an array of pulsars just distributed across the sky, you can look for patterns between pulsars to detect low-frequency gravitational waves. Okay. The low frequency here is the important bit. 
the frequencies of the waves that LIGO was detecting are about 10 to 100 hertz. Mm -hmm. The frequency of the waves that pulsar arrays are detecting are in nanohertz. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've heard someone describe this as the difference between like visible light and like radio waves. It's like the same thing, but like a different frequency. Yeah, it, they're detecting the same thing at different frequencies. In this case, mm -hmm. a much, much lower frequency. So yeah. a nanohertz is 100 billion times lower than the human audible range. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Because this frequency is so small, you need a lot of pulsars and you need... Mm -hmm to look over a very long period of time. So a few weeks ago, on the 30th of June, 2023, one of the members of the International Pulsar Timing Array, Nanograv, which is the American center, released a data set with observations from 68 pulsars looked at by three observatories obtained over a 15 year period. Wow. And what they saw, they have described, people have described, is the hum of the universe. Oh, wow. Not a single event like LIGO, this really high energetic mm -hmm. black hole merger, although that is part of it, but the constant undulating background of gravitational waves that is always constantly passing us. The fact that we have gone in 2015 to be able to see one event to now being able to see a constant background wave signal is mm -hmm. pretty yeah. impressive. So... As with these waves from LIGO, they probably do come from black holes merging somewhere between 8 to 10 billion light years away from Earth. But this time, they are still in the process of orbiting each other rather than that moment before merging. Oh, I see. Mm. Okay, mm. yeah, yeah. This makes the waves much smaller because it's not mm -hmm. that super crazy high energy last moment event. They are still producing those as they orbit but they're much smaller. And because it takes about 25 million years for a single merger to happen, Boy, howdy. during that time, another pair of black holes somewhere else in the universe will start to <gasps> merge. And then mm -hmm. another, mm -hmm. and then another, and another, and another, whoa, until you whoa, have whoa, 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 whoa. hundreds of thousands of black hole mergers happening, all giving off their own gravitational waves. So the hum of the wow. universe <laughs> is this wow. gravitational wave background from all these hundreds of thousands of black holes merging, it's a collection of signals that is constantly washing over us, if you will. I had wow. not heard that okay. thought yet. That is new to me. That's amazing. Yeah. So as you sit here right now, as we sit here, the world around us oh. is being constantly, but imper imperceptibly moved in space-time, contracting and expanding, which is fucking cool. That's wild. That's so crazy. The... I don't know. I, again, again, like you're saying, it doesn't r really affect our day to day lives, but it does affect how I'm thinking about like what is in space. Like what are the things that are the biggest things in space? It's like before I was like, oh, it's like you got big stars, you got little clouds of dust. But like now in that equation of all of it is like also there are these like huge like vibrations of gravity that are happening yeah. all over the place in these this low hum. Oh, God, the hum of the universe. I think that's a lovely way to put it that's such a nice way to put it oh my goodness yeah on its own i think this is exceptionally cool it doesn't really need more bigging up but just in case you do need more there are other potential explanations for this gravitational wave hum Ooh. like gravitational waves coming from the early moments of the universe after the big bang 
Wow. So this is when the universe was explosively expanding. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you get, they think potentially you get these primordial ripples in space-time caused by the expansion of the early universe. So to, uh, to beat this dead horse of a metaphor even further, the pulsar arrays are sort of like 60 like buoys throughout the lake that we have been like, we monitor them for like 15 years to see any long-term stuff. Yeah. And the idea is that these low ripples could either be from all of these bowling balls happening all the time, or they could be from the formation of the lake itself. Exactly. Yeah, that's a very good way wow. to put it. Actually, that's a, the, for those who are British boys. For- yeah, I was so like a buoy. Oh, they're called what boys? Is- yeah. A boy, yeah. Um, what? <laughs> that, that analogy of, of boys on the ocean is, uh, is like a really common one to kind of like imagine if mm. they're, they're, ah. they have like a flashing light on the top and they bob up and yeah. down. And sometimes you see the flashing and sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. But then you need to look at like how they synchronize together to see gravitational mm-hmm. waves. These gravitational waves could also come from cosmic strings. Um, now, I'm sorry. <laughs> cosmic strings are—they're a hypothetical thing. We've never—we've never discovered them. Okay. I barely understand what these are, but I'm going to read a quote from LIGO about them. Awesome. Cosmic strings are hypothetical one-dimensional objects okay. that may well. have formed in the early universe while it was cooling down and expanding. They are analogous to the cracks that form when water freezes. As the early universe cooled, space-time could have cracked causing cosmic strings to form. So they're these one-dimensional lines that because they're one-dimensional, all the energy in them is exceptionally condensed. Mm-hmm. All, all I know is right now the Marvel multiverse writers are eating this up. They're like, that's so good. It cracks in the gravitational waves and then that makes a superhero somehow. This is, yeah. it's really teetering past the uh, the realm of comprehension. Yeah, it is. But the idea is that these like one dimensional lines basically have so much energy in them that when they interact, <laughs> they can emit gravitational waves. Okay. Yeah. But we just don't, we just don't know yet. It's going to take mm-hmm. decades of work to disentangle where the background gravitational waves are actually from. Gosh. To finish this all up with a final thought on how amazing all of this is, we have spent hundreds of years studying the stars through telescopes and observatories. we using the electromagnetic spectrum and we've slowly improved that process over time so we can see more and more. That's great. Gravitational waves are not this. They are a whole new way of looking at the universe. They will eventually be able to tell us things that Einstein and his contemporaries thought may only ever be theoretical maths. They may be able to tell us about the start of the universe. They have confirmed that black holes merge, which is not something we knew was definitely true before. And thousands of people, like the many, many people who got us to the stage, are going to work together to achieve this. And it's going to take a very long time but it's going to be a really cool process. Oh my gosh. And for my next magic trick, I will produce from this simple cardboard box, fresh baked breads, pastas, and pastries in 25 minutes or less. Tom, that's, I guess that's impressive, but you know, that's just a wild grain box. Anyone can get that. (laughs) To the untrained eye, what I'm holding in my hands might seem like a frozen solid loaf of bread, but after baking it in the oven, it becomes an aromatic, slow-fermented cranberry pecan bread. That sounds amazing, but this isn't magic. It's just one of the many things you can find in a wild grain box, like olive oil ciabatta and handmade pasta. Hey, spoilers, those were my next tricks. Tom, everyone already knows about wild grain. It's the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Well, this, this magic trick isn't done yet. 
If you look towards the Greater Boston Food Bank, you'll see there have been six meals magically donated. Right, again, that's not magic. It's just what Wildgrain does every time a new member signs up. Gosh, you're really straining this bit, aren't you? <laughs> all right, fine. All right, fine. Well, you guys think you can do any better? Well, we can give you a special deal, actually. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com. Awful. <laughs> when you go to wildgrain.com forward slash let's learn to start your subscription. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash let's learn. That's wildgrain.com slash let's learn. Or you can use the promo code let's learn or one word at checkout. Maybe the real magic was the promo code we learned along the way. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> I'm so mad. Please tell us what to tape about. Please tell us what to tape about. Please. Because <laughs> I'm Alex and she's Katie and we make Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. A podcast about the history and science behind seemingly ordinary things. We've done entire episodes about ham or shoe sizes or concrete or the color beige. We need more ordinary stuff like that. Our Max Fun members suggest and pick our episode topics through Discord. So what do you wonder about? What do you wish you could start to find interesting? Make us tape your idea. And then hear the results on Secretly Incredibly Fascinating from MaximumFun.org. This episode's question is, what is the loneliest animal on the planet? Now, this is a bit more of a bit more of a silly goofy opportunity for caroline to just share lots of animal facts today sorry Yay. not sorry this topic was also inspired by a few people who brought up various aspects of this on the discord Ooh. if you want to uh, suggest a topic or get involved in the podcast community head over to letslearneverything.com where you'll find all of the info shameless plug at the beginning okay <coughs> first off <laughs> first I love off that theme gotta ask the important question what is Loneliness. loneliness. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I, thought you, I thought you said this was silly. <laughs> goofy, goofy, silly, crippling silly, loneliness. Hi. <laughs> Let's hear about all of your inner turmoil right now, guys. How are uh, you feeling? Are you feeling good? Yeah. I mean, my therapist has asked me this a handful of times, so I'm I'm very equipped to answer well this question. Well versed at this one. Yeah. Go you for can it. be you can be alone and not be lonely. Absolutely. Yes. As Jack's mannequin famously said, have you ever been alone in a crowded room? Oh my God, Tom. But also, Ella, that's such a good point that I think we're going we're gonna to be bringing up today is that you can be alone. But does that mean you're lonely? Hmm. Well, I'm technically alone right now. But you're with us I'm with... and the listeners. Yeah. We're all reaching Yay. out for a hug. Oh, <laughs> Ella's not. Okay. Uh, Caroline, also... <laughs> Thank you, Caroline, for letting us get all the jokes out because after we have, and I, I got like 10 more, but like once I get them all out uh, <laughs> and we'll edit it all out, but it does happen. It takes an hour. Um, <laughs> this is like genuinely, well, can, can I, can I, can I actually give this like a, a go? Yeah. Of a, go. Of a I mean, like, no, you can't answer the question. Sorry. No, not allowed. What? The answer <laughs> I wrote down was very, it was just a quick one to like establish what we're talking about. So I want you to fully try with this one, Tom, go for it. Because... It, so my first thought was, so there's the concept of Point Nemo, which I think is like the farthest point from land on the Earth. Oh, yeah. And so part of me was like trying to like find like the farthest distance from other biomass was like one thought I had. Another is like being 
a solitary animal um, ah, that's like far okay. from your own species. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. then another thought I had as going real deep is like, if you are an animal that can't perceive the outside world at all oh my god does that Tom. make you really lonely i feel like this is definitely going to be heavier than the answer caroline is a bacteria yeah fuck yeah. you caroline you <laughs> thought it was gonna be silly <laughs> fuck you like like uh, does a bacteria that can't tell the world are they lonely wow tom you've gone really deep into this i want to know what loneliness is to you ella <laughs> oh well we felt really targeted <laughs> Do you have to be a social animal to feel loneliness? Oh, Tom, that's such a good question, which we will talk about in a second. So according to the Oxford English Dictionary, yeah. loneliness is simply sadness because one has no friends or company. <laughs> Tom's face, just like... I can't believe we're doing this. We're I'm here. so excited. We're here. <laughs> so essentially, what I want to know today is who is the Billy No Mates of the animal kingdom? <laughs> nice. And where do we start? with this question actually tom brought it up earlier our first example is abigail jacobson she did not do very well at track and field and she comes from wisconsin and, and we've got her on the line now abby <laughs> no i wanted to look at an animal that might naturally be a bit of a loner something that has evolved mm. to be this way in one of the most extreme ways so to me the snow leopard comes to mind as a pretty solitary animal. Tom was not going to think that at yeah, all. Yeah, there we no. go. So oh. they're known for being shy, elusive, and incredibly territorial. They will literally patrol their territory, which can spend hundreds of kilometers in order to keep other snow leopards out. Wow. To me, though, this raises like a, a different question, which is how do they find a mate to like keep the species going if they don't want to hang out. Are these one of those animals that just like screams really loud for ages until a mate comes? <laughs> that's such a good question. Cause that's what sloths do. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Female sloths just hang there and scream until a male comes to them. It's hilarious. That's so funny. <laughs> My next question was going to be, can you think of any ways that animals communicate? Obviously, auditory is a perfect example of how animals... Oh, is it a f is it like a smell or like Pissing. a chemical? Yeah, they piss. Is it that, that good, good sex Just piss? tell me how snow leopards fuck, Caroline. <laughs> okay, I need to on. know. <laughs> He's on the line. <laughs> so... Here's the thing about snow leopards. So they do make some auditory sounds like purring and hissing. They can't roar due mm. to the <gasps> physiology of their throat. Oh. They can't make those sounds like other big cats can. Um, so instead mm. they make like puffing sounds. That's how they make like non-aggressive sounds, but that's not how they find a mate. You two have brought up something that they do potentially use though, which is smell. Olfactory communication is another really, really common one that animals use. Animals use it for all sorts of things, like to find food, to detect predators, and also to find a mate. And that is one of the ways that snow leopards communicate with other snow leopards, basically. So snow leopards use scent and visual markings as well, because visual communication is really important for lots of animals in order to communicate. So snow leopards leave markings on the landscape in forms of like scratches on the rocks and things like that, as well as... Like uh, like, like marking their territory with like snow leopard was here 2k13 dtf like asl they put their like number like how humans graffiti yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Caroline, I was going to say that as a joke. I was going to be like, oh, because they're in the snow, they can just make like a big heart snow print or something like that. But like, wait, wait. I I had never thought about them. That feels so advanced to use like a visual sign as opposed it's to really, like a smell really or clever, a sound. Isn't it? That's yeah. awesome. And, like this is how other animals can communicate with each other as well to like alert their presence mm. using like their visuals. Like birds use visuals to try and communicate sure, that they're ready sure. to mate. You know, it's a really, really common one. Um, so yeah, that's what snow leopards do. They scrape the ground and like spray urine on rocks to mark the territory and to locate a mate. So that's what snow leopards do. Now, this is all really cool. And species like snow leopards are definitely isolated. But would you say that they are lonely as such? What do you think? No, because just like Tom said, they're not social animals to begin with. Yeah. So mm -hmm. they want to be isolated. Yeah. So yeah, why would they totally. feel lonely? For animals to be lonely, they probably do need to be social animals. So to live in a group setting such as monkeys and apes and wolves and elephants and insects like ants. So we should probably establish. Mm. Oh, is this, animals... like, this is like the insect consciousness question again. Do ants feel loneliness? <laughs> Jesus. What? what do you think? Do ants feel loneliness? You have to be conscious to be lonely. So that's a, like from a human definition, but surely there could be negative impacts on an animal from being isolated, which could constitute as experiencing loneliness. In terms of ants specifically, in 2015, a paper suggested that ants possibly can experience loneliness or at least react <laughs> negatively to social isolation. The paper oh. suggested oh. that isolated <laughs> ants only live for six days, whereas oh group living ants can live for 10 times as long as that. So 66 days. So six days rather than 66 days. Oh my gosh. Due to the behavioral differences in isolated ants, they struggle to Whoa. digest food. They were far more active oh. in their nests as well. So they were moving around a lot more, not eating as much. And this all led to them having a massively reduced lifespan, which I thought was really interesting. That's fascinating. That's, That's fascinating for a start. To me, what that says is they are deeply colony-based animals, yeah. like eusocial animals. They're yeah. deeply eusocial animals yeah, yeah, yeah. that need that to mm -hmm. survive. Yeah. Uh, they have lost purpose without the rest of their colony. They yeah. Yeah. possibly have lost actual physiological benefits to being with that. I don't think mm. that means that they're lonely. Like <laughs> they could be, who knows? But we don't know that that's what they're feeling. If we table that aspect of it and we sort of embrace the silly, totally anthropomorphizing size of it, that is a really interesting way to think about animal behavior. I'm not tabling it, Tom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to push it to your side of the table. <laughs> In terms of other literature, a 2022 paper on the topic said, although studies using animal models are not perfectly analogous to the uniquely human state of loneliness, studies on the effects of social isolation in animals have observed similar physiological symptoms, such as increased amounts of the rodent analogue of human cortisol. They also display altered motivation, increased stress responsiveness mm. and dysregulation to their dopamine levels and limbic systems as well. Wait, so yeah. they, they, in the quote, they mention human loneliness. Yeah, they do. So wow. um, okay. mentioning that, like, obviously we don't know if we can compare them because we can't ask an animal, but yeah. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I don't understand that animals will never be analogous to human feelings of yeah. loneliness. That's not what I'm saying. I was saying in this specific case with insects that I don't, yeah, I totally. don't personally mm. believe that mm. loneliness exists versus like, <laughs> I'm sure they've done loneliness studies where they've isolated monkeys 
or mice yeah. or that kind yeah. of thing. Oh, yeah, that is a good point. And that they've shown physiological or like even visible responses mm-hmm. that suggest mm-hmm. that they are lonely, even if it's in their own specific way. Yeah, totally. So for, uh, further examples point. of that, a 2019 paper suggested that cattle, so cows, can feel lonely and even Aww. suggested that you should give them a mirror to try and help reduce their loneliness. Oh. 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 <laughs> and a 2023 oh. paper suggested that if you leave the telephone on for pet birds that also helps reduce loneliness oh. in those animals as well oh my fucking god yeah oh, that's so yeah ch- it's really really sweet isn't it i'm glad we're studying stuff like that that makes it's me glad. so cool isn't it i had um, no idea so i think we've established that like we're never going to fully understand if an animal can experience loneliness a lot of research has gone into it and we we do think that there are definitely animals that probably yeah. likely do yeah so, what makes the loneliest animal alive? How how do we how do we get to that point? This is the the, the thing that when you first said the question is the thing that first came to my head is an animal which is part of a social group or at least a pair that is the last animal <gasps> after an extinction event occurs. Of course, it's Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> I'm specifically talking about a very famous recording of a bird song. Oh, yeah. It's thought to have been the last, a bird calling for a mate. But um, uh, the understanding was that that was likely the last bird of that species. So it was never going to find that mate. That's a great answer, Ella. You know what? That's really fucking good. Congrats, you win the SAD award. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Can I maybe find that sound? Do you have it, Caroline? Yeah, please do. No, I don't have it. So please do. Uh, Here it is. This is the Kauai Oak. bird call is it working tom yeah i'm just not laughing (laughs) (laughs) we're just having a moment of being like yeah the entire i mean the the entire family is now extinct i I don't know if they know that this was definitely like the last one but i believe Mm. that the species was basically or irreparably kind of beyond saving extinct so it was very unlikely that this bird would have ever found a mate the other example that i have of this is a it's a tortoise called Lonesome George. Have either of oh. you two heard of Lonesome George before? I've, I think I've heard of the Wikipedia page for Lonesome yeah, George. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Lonesome George was a giant tortoise from the island of Pinta in the northern regions of the Galapagos. It was the last known survivor of the Pinta tortoise, uh, and he was considered the rarest creature in the world and became like wow. a conservation icon. Yeah. Hell yeah. We stand a conservation icon. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> So pinched tortoises were overexploited by whalers, fur sealers, and other people in the 1800s. We talked about this in the Judas goat episode. Mm. The habitat was also like really badly impacted by these goats. So it was believed that these tortoises went extinct in the early 20th century. But then George was just like discovered (laughs) in the 1970s. Go George! Within a pretty short time after this, the discovery of a pinned tortoise was big news. The American media began to refer to this tortoise as Lonesome George. (laughs) In the spring of 1972, the rangers of the Galapagos National Park like moved this tortoise. They were a bit worried about it if it was going to survive on its own. So they moved it to a tortoise centre in Santa Cruz for its protection. Here's the thing. Sure, he was the last of his species. It's really (sighs) terrible. Poor Lonesome George. But was he actually (laughs) that lonely? I'm here to argue that I don't think he was. In this thesis, I will, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I will defend. 
Because if you were to find a tortoise like this and take him to a tortoise center, what else do you think might be at the at the tortoise center for tortoises? Other other tortoises? Other other tortoises? Oh. Other tortoises to make other, friends with? Other tortoises? What? No, no way. way. So there were actually some species of tortoise that were genetically similar enough to oh. the pinter tortoise to be able to possibly breed I with mean, George. Oh, dang. Oh, that's good about the breeding. But also, it's tortoises really cool. will hump like anything. So I anything. bet he wasn't that lonely. Yeah. Got- <laughs> yeah. So even though they never found another pinter tortoise, George spent the rest of his life surrounded by other species like the wolf volcano tortoise, a fantastic name. Hell yeah. Uh, as well as the Española tortoise, who were both genetically similar enough to George to uh, encourage him to get it on and try breeding with him. Caroline, are you, are you are you saying that like Lonesome George sold out that like he's no longer punk rock? He's no longer yeah, lonely because now he's, exactly he gets to hang I'm out saying. with all the turtles he wants. He- Became really famous and then was like, you know what? I'm Caroline. ditching my island. I'm going to go and Caroline. hang out with all of these hot tortoise babes. <laughs> you lost your integrity. You... Is he still alive? No, he's not. I think he died in 2014 at the age of over 100. Shit. Nice. I can't believe you're taking this fucking position. <laughs> I, bet he, I bet he was banging right up until the end. Oh, I think fine. he was actually. So he never produced any hybrid offspring. But there's still hope for other already existing Pinter times wolf volcano tortoise hybrids, which will hopefully one day repopulate the Galapagos Islands in the future, which is really, really cool. Um, But George, even though none of his clutches were fertile, he did help produce some tortoise eggs. So he definitely did get it on in the last 30 years of his life. Good for him. Good for (laughs) George. So we've established that a lot of animals could potentially be lonely because they're the last of their species. Although in these cases, often they are being looked after by professionals to make sure that their mental health or their physical well-being isn't being impacted too badly by this. What about an animal that might have been isolated from its community somehow? That's that's the next animal I want to talk about. Mm. Let me tell you about Albert the Albatross. They all have fantastic names. So far, all of these have been great Disney movies. I mean, they literally did it with Rio, I guess. Yeah, but like, it's like the story of an animal that gets separated. (laughs) So in 2007, a BBC article wrote, a lovesick albatross has spent the last 40 years unsuccessfully looking for romance in Scotland. So (laughs) why do you think this albatross could be dubbed as the loneliest albatross. Are there other albatrosses in Scotland? Or is he no. just... No, there are not other albatrosses <laughs> in Scotland. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. How did he get there? So, Albert... Let me tell you a little bit about Albert. So, Albert is a black-browed albatross. We don't think that these birds appear very often here in the UK. One source suggested there have only been 33 sightings of this species here in the UK since the 1950s. And they're all and Albert. most of these... Yeah, they're all Albert. <laughs> <laughs> So the story has it that he was blown off course in a freak storm <gasps> in oh 1967. My God. Oh, oh my Albert. God. Yeah, I know. And because this species of bird is so reliant on airflow and wind direction and things like that to be transported, he just sort of got stuck in the Northern Hemisphere for the rest of his life. This is all explained in the theme song to the show. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then I got a call yeah. saying, now here I am in Scotland. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> For reference, these birds are supposed to, they typically live in the Southern Hemisphere. So this albatross would have been about 8,000 miles away oh, from his home. Buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't um, they just take him back? So the thing is, he didn't just live in the UK. He would move around a lot. Albatrosses are migratory birds. So he mm. would move around between here in the UK and in parts of Germany as well, I oh, think. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Can you imagine spotting this fucker and being like, wait, what? Hey, what what? The... <laughs> that can't be right. What the fuck? Well, so, <laughs> so the issue for Albert is that if no other albatrosses come along, he is going to be the only one that's there and if no other birds are blown off course that's just not going to happen for albert specifically he <laughs> bless him he used to try and uh mate with other species of seabird specifically gannets because he was very very lonely bless his sure. cotton socks um this is a much smaller <laughs> species of seabird so nothing was going to happen uh, for him sure. and that's how he lived the remainder of his life I'm not entirely clear on when this bird passed away, but he probably would have been about 70 when he did eventually. I'm sorry, what? They lived for a very, very long time. So he probably spent literally Holy. 40 years on his own in the Northern Aww. Hemisphere. He's a bachelor wandering around Europe. You know, he's finding yeah. himself, I'm sure. Having a lovely time. That, that gets resolved in season two. No, season two is about Albie, the albatross, who came <gasps> over in 2014. So I think not what? long after Albert had passed away, Albie comes along and there's a whole RSPB page about this albatross <gasps> and when you can cite him, basically. So there's at least two birds. It's unclear if they're passed. Look at this lonely motherfucker. Crossed. Look, look yeah. at him. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so there's no recent updates about Albert. It's assumed he's passed away. But Albie is now being coined as the loneliest albatross, being the only albatross in the Northern Hemisphere. So oh, do you think this wow. could be a contender for the loneliest animal? That's pretty good. It's pretty to, good, to isn't it? Do albatross, are albatrosses social? Or is it just for mating reasons? Because that's sad, but like, meh. Yeah, so they do spend <laughs> a lot of time like in these big groups. <laughs> okay, how well, social then that's they are. Sad. But it is yeah. pretty sad, yeah. I feel bad for Albie. He's not going to get laid anytime soon. He's been lost since 2014. <laughs> it's not great. Like, can you imagine taking a wrong turn on the way home and just never seeing another human being again? Okay, yeah, that that is a pretty... When you put it like that, yeah yeah right right it is also it's, it is it makes it very interesting that they because i automatically assumed it was it was a human that fucked it up but for it to literally just be like a freak of nature is, is yeah, event is pretty wild too totally. don't call albert a freak of nature <laughs> i read the story <laughs> i know <laughs> don't be rude to albie gosh Jeez. the final animal that i want to talk about today is not isolated because he's the last of his species or because he got lost He's right. isolated in a slightly different way. And this one, again, is another animal that you might have heard of. It's a species of whale. Mm. So we know that whales tend to be quite social animals. Very, yeah. They're very smart. Yeah, they're really, really smart. Why would a whale possibly be lonely? What do you think? He can't do whale calls. <gasps> so he can't find the others or talk to them. Ella, you are almost spot on with oh. that one that is such a good yeah that's such a good suggestion it's something we talked about a lot earlier communication its ability mm. to communicate with other whales so whales are known for their singing especially species like humpback whales but a lot of species like blue whales fin whales orcas all vocalize or sing 
We also know that some whales make like clicking noises to help with their navigation, especially to understand where objects might be in relation to the animal. And they can even communicate non-verbally by making splashing sounds using their fins, which I think is really cool. He speaks in a different accent. Does he speak in a different (laughs) frequency? Tom, you're spot on. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Let's dive into it. So... Whale songs are really, really specific to the species. And actually, they can be so specific that different pods in the same species might vocalize in different ways. These vocalizations will usually remain in the same sort of pitch. So around 10 to 40 hertz, depending on the species. There is a whale known as 52 blue, which sings at the wrong frequency. Possibly a frequency that's too high for whales to even hear. So in 1989, 52's song was heard for the first time. It was picked up by a selection of classified sensors that the US Navy had deployed to try and detect Soviet submarines. Yeah, they're called um, hydrophones. They put them at the bottom of the ocean. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're cool. They're cool things. I should do a topic on it one day. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So the sensors that were being used to try and find Soviet submarines were then declassified and scientists started (gasps) using them to try and listen to the ocean. Oh, hell yeah. So in 1989, this sound was first detected. And in 1992, this sound was once again detected by technicians who were using them for scientific research. It was established at the time that this sound was from a whale, but it wasn't a sound that they had particularly heard before. Mm-hmm. The whale is likely a blue whale or a fin whale, which again, the frequency is usually much lower for this whale. It's usually between 10 and 40 hertz. 52 is 52 hertz, as the oh, name suggests why. for the whale. Yeah, it's really, really cool. So Kate Stafford, a researcher at the National Marine Mammal Laboratory in Seattle, said about the whale, the fact that this individual has been capable of existing in this harsh environment for at least 12 years indicates wow. there's nothing wrong with it. Mm. She said, but she agrees that there was something poignant about the finding. He's saying, hey, I'm here. Nobody is phoning home. Which Aww. I just thought was a really sad yeah. way. But we, but we can hear you. We hear yeah, you. Yeah, can we not? Can we not make a device to like pitch his calls down for the other whales? Because that would be. He- <laughs> this is the other interesting thing about Fifty Two. So first off, there's speculation about what's going on with the whale. Mm. There's suggestions that the pitch of the, his song may be due to a malformation in his vocal cords or the equivalent of for a whale, or mm. because it could be a possibly a hybrid between do, two different species of whale, which oh. could have caused this difference. And obviously ever since the news broke about this whale, he's been in people's hearts. As often is <laughs> the case with animals in this situation, people really relate to the creature. There are songs, books, poetry has been written about this no animal. Um, and I feel like this one really hits home. It's singing, which I guess adds this like level of sadness, but also because these are such intelligent animals, which I imagine is why some people really feel a lot about this story. But there's also so much we don't know about the animal. We don't know what species it is. Mm. It's often referred to as a he, but we don't know what the gender of the animal is. The only Mm. like way that we know that this animal exists is because we've picked up the sound of it. Nobody has ever actually seen this whale. Wow. So it's It's wild. It could just be someone making those noises, not actually a whale at all. They're (laughs) pretty certain that it's a whale. (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) There was a 2021 documentary about this whale. Wow. The filmmakers were trying to find the whale for the first time, and I believe unsuccessfully in this documentary but the filmmakers faced an issue 
ships were making it harder to hear mm. the whale. Mm. And this isn't just an issue for individual whales either. In 2018, researchers reported that the noises emanating from human-operated cargo ships disrupt the mating song of humpback whales. It drowns out the sound oh. underwater, and some whales even completely become mute in the vicinity of these vessels, oh my which gosh. could have serious consequences for their reproductive success. Wow. Oh. The Guardian summarised an article on 52 Blue by saying, regardless, there is a clear takeaway. The deafening sound of lone container vessels, just one of thousands crisscrossing the ocean, lead us to an ironic realisation. While we were troubled about the loneliest whale in the world, tens of thousands of cargo ships have been creating an ocean full of lonely whales. Their calls mm. drowned out by the sounds of everyday commerce, rumbling even louder in a desperate attempt to be heard. Capitalism doesn't oh. just isolate humans, it isolates animals too. Ah. Oh my goodness. So that, that pretty much leads us to the end. Um, but I do want to summarize it a little bit because I feel like a common theme today has been humans impacting animals mm, from mm. the pinter tortoise who like population was decimated because humans went in and ate all of them basically to cattle and birds being kept by humans in non-ideal conditions and even now whales that can't communicate with each other. Humans are a little bit obsessed with allocating the title of like loneliest bird or loneliest tortoise mm. or loneliest whale mm, mm. possibly trying to relate and process our own feelings of loneliness without un understanding the impact that we are possibly having on those animals that's an amazing point that is the fact that all of these have become personified like we call them lonesome george and that says something yeah. i, I yeah. totally not consider that i guess i mean Lonesome George is a, is a good example of how like when he came up at around in the 60s or whatever how or yeah, how, not yeah. later how people were ignoring that but I feel like the title of loneliest animal now like what you're doing Caroline is a good way to highlight why they are the lonely impact. why they might be yeah, lonely totally like with like with whale 52 yeah yeah I'm assuming that lots of the researchers who are aware of this whale are aware of the fact that these whale calls are disrupted by shipping and they, they try and get that information across. So in yeah, a way, totally. it can be used as a kind of thing to draw people in, talk it about can. their impact, which is what you've yeah, just yeah, done, yeah. Caroline, right? Yeah. And it's also such a cool way to to think about the complexity, what is otherwise like a really complex concept of like social interaction and yeah. ecological interaction to, to use the frame of loneliness as like a tool to get us into that topic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, right? It gets people talking about that animal, which oftentimes they're not the most charismatic of animals to be talking <laughs> about either. Um, so I think that definitely has its benefits. I also want to leave it on a bit more of a like serious point that I think it says a lot about our society that sometimes mm. we feel like we need to relate to an animal in its solitude when we have no clue if animals even like experience loneliness in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that humans definitely experience loneliness and it can be really really detrimental to our health so a report from the national academics of sciences engineering and medicine point out that more than one third of adults aged 45 and older feel lonely mm. and nearly a quarter of adults aged 65 and older are considered to be socially isolated so loneliness can significantly increase a person's risk of premature health from all causes increase mm. the risk of dementia, increase your own risk of having a heart attack and stroke. And of course, it disproportionately impacts people of color and the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. We can, of course, feel bad for the animals that are impacted by this, especially when humans might be the issue. But we've also got to look at ourselves. So at the end of this episode today, maybe reach out to a friend or a loved one, 
have a chat, maybe share some of the cool facts you've learned today. And make sure that you are looking after yourselves as well. Thank you very much. Oh, well, great within that, Caroline. Oh, great. I don't have anything funny to add. I'm so sorry. I've left it at a point where I feel like you two can't make any jokes at the end of it. That's probably for the best. <laughs> oh, I was just, all I had to, I have to obligatory because someone's going to call me out in the Discord if I don't say this, is that technically the loneliest animal is Carly Rae Jepsen circa 2022 when she released the album The Loneliest Time. Okay, I can, I can breathe now. Okay, Are you good cool. now? Are you to, happy yeah, you got, got that out? Okay. And, and just so yeah. that's just not the end of this topic after Caroline's point, I'm going to reiterate what Caroline said. Go and call a friend uh, or a family member and look after each other. And tell them about these animals and Carly Rae Jepsen's album. <laughs> no, once again, nope. no, Tom, huh? Tom we're huh? not no. letting you end what? on Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> I have to, I'm contractually no. obligated. No, you're not allowed to detract from Caroline's serious point. Look after each other, love each other, help and loneliness. Call them maybe. Oh <laughs> my god. My god. <laughs> that, was that was really good though. <laughs> Guys, I'm just so busy these days. I've got podcast topics to research. I've just started a new job saving Britain's birds. And I'm disrupting the gender binary with my mere existence as a non-binary person. I don't have time to think about what I'm going to make for dinner and go food shopping on top of all of that. Well, Caroline, you don't have to. HelloFresh delivers meal plans with quality proteins and fresh produce straight from the farm to your door in less than seven days. And they offer more than just delicious dinners. They also help break the gender binary. <laughs> you can get snacks, sides, and more in your weekly order. There is a curated selection of over 100 items ready to go, so you can spend even more time saving birds and making this podcast and defeating the gender binary in combat. Amazing, but surely I can just get takeout instead. Well, you could, but HelloFresh has super fast recipes that can be ready in just 15 minutes, and it's 25% cheaper than takeout. I actually just got my new HelloFresh box delivered today, this morning. <gasps> I'm definitely the most excited for the Thai green curry recipe that's in there because it looks delicious. But on days like today, when we're making the podcast, I don't actually have that much time to cook. So I can go for one of their rapid cook meals. Like I made Tex-Mex tacos, beef tacos today, Ooh. which I cooked super quick in just 20 minutes before we started recording. It was super fast. Everything was pre-portioned. So I didn't have to think about any of that. And most importantly, it was delicious. For the first time in years, I'm actually enjoying cooking again because Aww. so much of the hassle has been taken out of it. Okay, I'm sold. What do I do now? Use our promo code, of course. <laughs> Just go to HelloFresh.com slash Learn50 and use the code Learn50 for 50% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Learn50 and code Learn50, all one word, for 50% off plus free shipping. And give yourself more time to disrupt the gender binary. <laughs> Hey, Sydney, you're a physician and the co-host of Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine, right? That's true, Justin. Is it true that our medical history podcast is just as good as a visit to your primary care physician? No, Justin, that is absolutely not true. Uh, however, our podcast is funny and interesting and a great way to learn about the medical misdeeds of the past, as well as some current not-so-legit healthcare fads. So you're saying that by listening to our podcast, people will feel better. Sure. And isn't that the same reason that you go to the doctor? Well, uh, you could say that. But and our podcast is free? Yes, it is free. You heard it here first, folks. Sawbones, Meryl Tour of Misguided Medicine, right here on Maximum Fun, just as good as going to the doctor. No, no, no. Still not just as good as going to the doctor, but, but pretty good. It's up there. 
So today's miscellaneous topic is graffiti. And before we go into the history of ancient graffiti, I actually want to start with the history of the word graffiti itself because this surprised me. So do either of you know how old the word graffiti is and also what it means? Um, I bet it's a pretty recent term. I'm going to go the last 200 years, maybe like the 1850s. So according to the Google Books Ngram viewer, the first bump in the usage of the word is in the 1830s. <gasps> Uh, it comes from the Italian word for scratch, uh, as in to like etch. And what's wild is back then saying ancient graffiti was actually redundant because it was only ever used to refer to the etchings found at archaeological sites. Oh, interesting. Ah. So the origin of the word graffiti was talking about ancient doodles from people and exactly. not about exactly that's so interesting modern graffiti comes comes from that which yeah. is wild uh, as janine anslet wrote for university college london it is from these ancient forms of public inscriptions that the word graffiti originated and so to get us a good general definition of graffiti uh, i liked how historian karen stern described it when she said some scholars describe graffiti as unofficial or informal markings on surfaces originally designed for different purposes. Uh, and boy howdy, was there a lot of graffiti across the entire ancient world, from Mayan to Egyptian to Mesopotamian to Greek and Roman. Uh, as Smithsonian Mag notes, quote, from the very beginning, archaeologists noticed copious amounts of graffiti on the outside of buildings throughout the ancient Roman world, including Pompeii. Wow. They also go on to say... Uh, in the ancient Roman world, graffiti was a respected form of writing, often interactive. Ah, that is interesting, that it was respected. Yeah. I'm not surprised that it happened. I feel mm -hmm. like humans like to just write on things, right? Yeah. Like, I feel we like do I've like seen... to say we were here. Yeah. Uh, but what's also great about these findings is that, as Anslet put it, uh, graffiti offers, quote, insight into the daily lives of people living during the first century. Oh, yeah, of course. The graffiti ranges from political rhetoric and love declarations to magic charms and witty banter. Oh, wow. I love the idea of it being like, yeah, fuck Plutius Maximus III <laughs> or whatever. And, oh, Ella? And his po policies. <laughs> We're going to literally get into it right now. One story I loved is that around the first century BCE, uh, the Greek philosopher... Athenodoros uh, returned to his hometown and basically found that another poet, Boethos, had become like the hot shit while he was gone. <laughs> and so he was like, uh, fuck that. And he exiled him, <gasps> which then made an angry fan of Boethos right on the wall. Deeds are for the young, counsels for the middle aged, but farts for the old man. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's harsh. Other examples include ancient Mayan graffiti depicting sports games uh, and even what we think could have been little self-portraits. Oh, sweet. And then, of course, there was the graffiti like this one phrase uh, that was written in Aramaic that was apparently like seen in multiple places. And it just translates to, I am Hia, uh, the name Hia, H-I-Y-Y-A, basically just oh. be like, I'm Tom. <laughs> I am Tom. And like... I've definitely seen graffiti, just saying, oh, yeah. I am this name. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Under especially great YouTube videos, you'd see multiple carvings saying first. Uh, it's just like the Roman numeral one over and over again. Um, <laughs> uh, what's my next joke? What's my next joke? Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> even though I lost you. Uh, no. Uh, in fact, there was so much graffiti. There was graffiti about graffiti. <laughs> Uh, one really famous etching from a wall in Pompeii is translated by the Boston College Library as, 
I marvel, O Wall, that you have not died. You who put up with so many irksome writers. <laughs> nice. That's so good. Oh, that's great. But the last one I want to mention that I truly adore comes from a fragment of marble from the building that once, once it was destroyed, was replaced by the Parthenon in Greece. So it was mm. like the predecessor to one of the buildings in Greece. Uh, and it reads, Lysias Kalos. Can either of you... Guess what that means? No. Lysias was here. Even better. It translates to Lysias is handsome. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So this is graffiti that ancient Tom was leaving on places. Yeah. <laughs> there was there was a TikTok I saw about this from uh, someone named The Culture Muse. And they were like, it's not clear if this is written by a fan or or just by Lysias himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, Whoa, who wrote that? That's so, what? Someone said my that. My brain immediately was like, that was so somebody writing about themselves. It never even crossed them. Uh, yeah, that I somebody else, else someone else would. Yeah, I also thought it was someone writing about themselves. But it's also funny that the Museum of Cycladic Art, uh, which hosts this piece in Greece, classifies this as a quote marble fragment with an erotic inscription from the archaic time. Erotic. <laughs> Listen, that's their words. Wow. But I also find it really, really interesting how they describe this piece. They say, quote. This is a very special exhibit that is not a work of art or an object of utility, as this fragment is just a humble confession in a public space. I find that description great, but it also points to something really, really interesting about graffiti, especially ancient graffiti. And it's the first of many sort of like philosophical puzzles we're gonna we're gonna talk about about graffiti. It was the first of many quandaries that got me actually really hooked in this topic. Because they're saying this is not a work of art, but it is clearly being displayed at the Museum of Cycladic Art, right? And also by the earlier definition I gave of graffiti, it is informal and unofficial. So does art have to have an intention for it to have been art, to be art? But it also clearly says something, which is why we put it in this museum. So I'm just curious what you guys think. I, I, I think art has intention personally. So I think no. I think like some graffiti now is art and some is not art. Some is vandalism. Mm -hmm. That sounds like I'm putting a negative connotation on. I think that has its own uses in society as well, um, mm -hmm. politically, whatever. Yeah. But it's not necessarily art. I think I'm inclined to agree with that point because like when I think of graffiti, I, I always have in my head there's like back in my home city if i walk under like along this canal there's this huge like gorilla graffiti and it is like the most beautiful and intricate piece of graffiti i've ever seen and that has such an intention of being art and it, like mm, mm. it's really really stunning even though it's gonna get painted over eventually whereas i don't know inscribing saying like i am here or this person's handsome on a tree or something like that doesn't i don't know Obviously, like if so, if Lysias yeah. in inscribed that or graffitied that with intention for it to be art, then it's art. Like I think that is mm. a, a, that is my, as simple as it gets to me. But we can't know that, and it seems yeah, unlikely. Right. So, well, can I ask the question? Like, do you consider it art in the same way that like poetry is, or like any message is art? Is it, I, well, I guess that's the question. Like, is is any written message art, or is it only when it has the intention of that? Like if they're trying to communicate, is 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 that on the the broad side of that definition of art? Uh, yeah, my brain immediately goes to the in exact opposite end of that, which is like thinking about oh. scientific literature. Do I view scientific literature <laughs> that is so oh, clearly trying to communicate something as a form of art? Yeah, I think 
I, I think, think that's it, such a good point, Caroline. Yeah. Um, when, I don't think either Caroline and I would say that there is like a hard and fast rule where something mm-hmm. is art course, and not yeah. art. But when you start getting really, when you really abstract it like that, like any words conveying meaning can be art then you just open this like yeah but like you open this door to saying something like science scientific literature is art it's not but unlike scientific literature which is meant to communicate a point to like a, com- a specific scientific community this is purposefully public which is an interesting so thing, elon Musk right? tweets are art listen that's such a good no point. i'm just saying like oh, that's like, the that is what yeah. i'm hearing when you say that <laughs> i'm maybe i'm i'm like a hard um are you a hard this is our camp tom i'm maybe not maybe not hard but i i do feel like if someone has a message that they want to share to the public there is something about that that but i will say i think I you wanted like, us to, i think you wanted us to no, say no, something I'm actually, else I'm, I'm really i'm i'm really uh, uh glad to hear this because because i do feel what i do feel is that this is almost too human or ordinary to be considered art right it's a converse it, it's almost like a conversation but here's what i'm trying to say i, I can agree with you but i those are my favorite kinds of art are the, mm. is the quasi art is the like questionable art that's just personally what i adore is like something that is that makes you question if it's art therefore it is kind of art so i i, I can agree that it is not but that's almost what makes me like it's yeah, weird it's, and, I, and i do definitely see your guys's points though we could talk about this forever yeah we won't have an answer to this yeah yeah this is the one this is the one <laughs> our, our question there is no answer to this i will end with a uh, a thing that we all can agree on which is that there is some very unique aspect to ancient graffiti that's very cool a uh, historian claire taylor notes that these pieces offer something unique and she says Graffiti is often produced very spontaneously with less thought than Virgil or the epic poetry. It gives us a different picture of ancient society. Yeah. But weirdly enough, sometimes graffiti can be the opposite. Sometimes it can be even bigger than Virgil, such as the case of Kilroy. Do either of you know the phrase Kilroy was here? (laughs) No. I've heard of it before. Yeah. Yeah. I think by our generation, it's sort of just like the echoes of it, but it used to be huge. Uh, Vox described it once in a headline as the World War II meme that circled the world. (laughs) So one of the most famous pieces of graffiti is the tag Kilroy was here uh, with a drawing of a person with a droopy nose looking over a wall. Uh, You guys can uh, look it up. I've seen that image before. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it started during World War II. And as historian Tim O'Gorman wrote, wherever the U.S. fought in World War II and wherever G.I.s spent their time, the peering cartoon image of Kilroy with the graffiti Kilroy was here marked their presence. The army, it seemed, could never get ahead of Kilroy. He was always there first. Although every G.I. knew what Kilroy meant, no one could say exactly where he came from. Basically, it was a way uh, for American troops to say, hey, we were here in like a silly inside joke way. Nice. Okay. That's That's cool. It's dumb and I love it. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and Gorman brings up a, a super interesting point I had never heard before in saying, quote, Kilroy was the World War II GI's creation reflecting the nature of America's citizen soldier army. Basically, like, sometimes these soldiers were kids that had no intention mm. of, of being mm-hmm. soldiers. And so this was something that brought them joy and comfort, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, there's something a little bit sad about it, you know. But it's, but, yeah. 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 It's like they're trying to lighten something like quite yeah. horrible yeah, yeah totally totally and um yeah like i said vox described it as the world war ii meme that circled the world and that's in part because kilroy lived on way past the war 
Um, there's a chunk of the Berlin Wall at the DC Museum that has a Kilroy tagged on it. No way. <laughs> and you'll, you'll still see it as like a reference. And I actually first remember hearing about this phrase from the song Mr. Roboto by Styx. It references Kilroy at the, at the very end, weirdly. I think it's mm. like part of the meta-narrative of the album. Very strange. But to others, Kilroy symbolized something bigger than any of that. It symbolized something about graffiti itself. We're going to cut now to the University of Virginia in 1957. One of the great American authors, William Faulkner, is the writer in residence and answering a Q&A when a student asks, I think you said that you haven't yet achieved your own personal goal as a writer. What is that goal? To which Faulkner responds, Really, the writer doesn't want success. He has a short span of life, that the day will come where he must pass through the wall of oblivion. And he wants to leave a scratch on that wall. Kilroy was here, that somebody a hundred or a thousand years later will see. Uh, and he actually used this metaphor multiple times through this series. Uh, when someone asked about Dostoevsky, uh, Faulkner said, he was one that wrote a good Kilroy was here. And that is... Another really interesting aspect of graffiti, I love that like pining for being remembered, right? And it's something that is, of course, not remotely modern at all, uh, but something deeply human. One of my favorite pieces of ancient graffiti uh, that I saved for this comes from a tomb in Israel, and it basically echoes exactly what Faulkner says. It reads, remember the writer and the reader and me. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> it's an interesting, Kilroy was here is, a, is quite unique in its yeah totally totally um longevity mm, i mm -hmm. i see graffiti as transient yeah i yeah. Uh, something that like you do knowing that eventually it will be someone could wash white, it over washed or away yeah. or painted yeah. over like i like the transient nature of graffiti mm -hmm. of modern day graffiti in that sense that this is something yeah. that you know that it's something that will be lost so you you, you know it just will give people joy or give you joy for just a short mm -hmm. amount of time yeah. Well, even with Kilroy, we don't know. There's no like artist who created Kilroy, right? So in yeah. some ways it has lost something, which is it interesting too, and, right? And, and in fact, it was probably many people, right, is the idea. But, oh, yeah, um, yeah of definitely. Course, yeah. And also, I'm sure there are lots of Kilroys that have never been discovered or were blown away or washed away kind of yeah, thing as well. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, <gasps> that's interesting, Ella. Yeah, yeah that's, I, I think that would, that's my perspective. My like initial like feelings on graffiti is that transient nature of it mm. rather mm -hmm. than something... But I do understand like what he's saying and that want to be remembered as of course. Yeah, yeah. It it's it's I can totally see it being both ways in a way. Because mm -hmm. even even in being impermanent, it says something about permanence. I, I also just really love that one specifically, the remember the writer and the reader and me. Mm. I don't know if it's like intentionally or unnecessarily that way. It's just so intriguing. It's like, is me different from the writer? Is is and to address the reader directly to be remembered i just it's just a very there's something about it that i love um, yeah but we're going to start approaching the modern concept of, of graffiti that ella was talking about so like a decade or so after faulkner's interview in the 1970s is when we start to arrive at graffiti as we know it today including the extremely influential style of new york city subway graffiti which is amazing could be a whole topic itself um, but as one of the authors of The History of American Graffiti told PBS, quote, These were kids that developed a whole art form that went from a simple signature all the way up to a mural that covered the entire side of a subway car. And built into this movement is, of course, inherently a sense of social and economic frustration, mm -hmm. kind of, which was always something in the DNA of graffiti. You're someone writing on someone else's wall because it's it's what you can do. And so there's, there's always been this aspect of it in the DNA of graffiti, but the city of New York really catalyzed and pushed this to an extreme. Um, so the authors in that interview, they point out the fact that, quote, 
The facade of the museum will always be seen by more people than the inside and the art within. And graffiti artists aren't dumb. They recognize that, right? Like a cool thing about graffiti that I had never put to words is it is inherently public. Yeah. And as we became a society that is more and more stratified and gated off, as was happening in the city at the time, the public aspect of graffiti became more and more important. Graffiti on the side of trains, especially, like, mm, yeah. gets that sentiment across to me. Like, if you're standing in the in the subway station or the tube, whatever, and, and the, as the train pulls in and you see, like, a huge mural of graffiti on the side of a train, I find that, like, really impactful when I see that. Yeah, like, yeah. that moment is, like, nice. I'm, like, good for you. And what's so cool is that, like, that graffiti artist saw that train. You know, it's like it's, like, unlike a museum that is, like, hidden away and these graffiti artists are seeing the things that everyone sees every day and, and is making stuff like that but i think yeah i think that's a great point ella um and it also ties into the, another cool thing of graffiti one of my favorite aspects of modern graffiti what they call the how did they do that factor that <gasps> moment of yes! like like holy shit how did you get up there i don't understand yeah. i never understand and what's cool is this has, again, always been a part of graffiti. As the Penn Museum describes ancient Mayan graffiti, they say, quote, many of the original drawings are apparent to even a casual glance, but countless more are obscure, hidden in dark corners or under the mossy green mold, which covers most of the exposed walls of building. The artists, in quotes, seem to have made use of every available area on which to put their messages. The results of their efforts are as varied as the talents of the artists themselves. And so when you live in a city with huge moving trains bridges abandoned tunnels and huge like blank sides of buildings it is no wonder that graffiti explodes so you have this like perfect storm of events that exacerbate and like catalyze what graffiti was always already about and that's sort of I, that's one of the reasons why it takes off and as this starts to take off in the local scene it also starts to take off in the art world at large because it's around this time that graffiti artists like uh, jean-michel basquiat and Keith Haring start getting mainstream art world attention. Graffiti went from being not art at all to being maybe art to being high art, mm. which again brings in all sort of philosophical questions about mm -hmm. art. Mm -hmm. Some of them too big to answer here. Some of them can't be answered. I, I remember Ella covered in her forgery topic the fact that the high art world is, is gross and messy and, and almost like antithetical to art in many ways yeah but there is one icky question that i do want to throw at you guys because i think i might have an answer and it's the question of graffiti like just a month ago when a tourist decided to carve oh my god yeah i knew you were gonna bring this up i yeah. knew it <laughs> ivan plus Haley 23 623 into do you guys know where they carved this yeah the coliseum oh was it the coliseum yep. oh yeah my goodness. this isn't the first yeah. time this has happened to the coliseum either oh no certainly not and i'm sure you've heard tons of stories of this happening to other places i think it's worse when people do it into like old trees or rare trees that's the real like, that annoys me yeah and of course city officials will see that and write off all graffiti as degenerate but of course i've also just talked about a lot of graffiti that i adore so what can we parse out here i'm curious what y'all think what makes this icky here's the thing about the coliseum graffiti if yeah if someone had done that with the intent to send a political message I probably would have been fine with it, mm. even yeah, though it is yeah. damaging something very priceless. If it had purpose, I think it would have been fine. If it, like you say, Tom, mm, if it was mm. art in that sense. Interesting. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Then this is where the like 
um, we go back to that ancient graffiti you were talking about and the handsome Lysias and this, they have, in my opinion, the same intent that we know of. Interesting. And so yeah. I, I don't consider what that person did to be any kind of like have any rhyme or reason other than an impulse to do it for the sake of yeah it's a very yeah. human impulse i don't think this person should be demonized um like they this have is, been this is the point that i get to is like like sure don't graffiti this incredibly ancient monument but also like i don't humans put that there and humans have been graffitiing <laughs> it for like the entirety of history and humans will continue to do so i don't think any amount of deterrent is going to stop that from happening mm. you don't i mean don't graffiti antiquities guys but yeah no, don't <laughs> yeah, do that yeah but please. also i don't have as strong as a of a negative reaction as i think other people might have mm. towards mm. that happening if mm. that makes sense like i think it's just such a human thing on a human monument yeah you know that's how i feel about it one thing i think those are both really good points and i didn't actually have any of them so i'm glad you guys mentioned them because uh you know one other thing is of course like you know the reason we can love ancient graffiti but not like this graffiti is is because with time it, it can change you know i'm sure there's plenty of ancient graffiti that at the time was yeah, totally. was probably equally as as hated and illegal um but you know that's that's just the nature of time so uh another thing is also like are you punching up are you punching down like like to ella's point like what are you what are you trying to say with this oh, like yeah. right like like do you do you have something to say about the ancient romans and the Colosseum? Mm -hmm. is that mm. like is that why you're carving it into this you know go graffiti jeff bezos's house but this was a thing that i thought was super interesting is an important difference is the fact that all of the graffiti i've mentioned so far was from people who lived there and were invested in the community. But these were tourists. Oh, yeah, that's another good point. And I think this is also one of the reasons why Banksy's graffiti kind of reeks, aside from also being, you know, a little, little milk toast sometimes. So Banksy was famous for making art along the wall, dividing Palestine and Israel along the West Bank. And, you know, in some ways, it's a good way of spreading awareness. Um, but as the Harvard International Review put it, quote, Banksy recalls his first visit to the West Bank in which an old Palestinian man told him that his painting made the wall look beautiful. After Banksy thanked him, the man replied, we don't want it to be beautiful. We hate this wall. Go home. <laughs> As activist Amani Khalifa said, quote, we don't have the privilege of writing on the wall and then going home and never having to see this wall again. We are forced mm -hmm. to see it every day. Banksy, um, I have issues with Banksy as like a general... Uh, so I... Used to work in Birmingham, which is known for being an area which quite with quite a lot of homelessness, as are many cities here in the UK. Yeah. So I used to get the tram into work because I, I couldn't afford the train at the time. And when I came out of the tram stop one day, there was a Banksy that had appeared like overnight from like Tuesday to Wednesday or whatever. And it was around Christmas time, I think. So it was this reindeer pulling a sleigh or something like that. So because it was this like, we've got to like stop homelessness, sort of that was like the theme of this piece according to Banksy. Sure. And it was a bit like, first off, how does that help people who are being unhoused, you know? The second part was that it immediately got graffitied over the top of. Well, that's hilarious. Hell yeah. It didn't have like these like bright red noses, like a Rudolph nose, and somebody went in and graffitied some bright red noses over the top of it. That's and silly. the response from the council was to then put this like plastic perspex screen over the top of it so that me? people couldn't continue to graffiti over the top of it. Guess how much that fucking cost in comparison to fucking housing these mm -hmm. people. Right, right. So <laughs> there was all of this discourse around oh. this piece because it was like, first off, 
like it didn't do anything to help anybody. Then it got graffitied over the top of, and then people aren't allowed to graffiti over the top of it again. That's like, funny. It's such wow. a wild yeah. concept to me. And it was like, yeah, the thing about not being able to graffiti on it again is ridiculous. I, yeah, I will say, absolutely. To your first point about it not doing anything, graffiti doesn't have to do anything. No, if it brings, absolutely. If it not, makes yeah. people talk about something i think graffiti with political t- intent is doing its job there i think the thing about banksy yeah. is that i'm assuming by this t- point banksy was already very very famous what 2017 right. or something so like that? Oh, banksy's yeah. been around yeah. for a long time and is worth a lot of money now banksy used to be a much smaller graffiti artist who had a lot of intent to criticize yeah. britain yeah. and the politics yep, here yep. and and the politics in other places with his graffiti and it had some impact on people that's why it got very popular mm-hmm. now banksy is very very wealthy as far as we know yeah every time banksy does graffiti to say something i think it's it's like it feels hypocritical yes i do yeah, know yeah, banksy yeah, does a lot of charitable stuff and does bring a lot of attention to things that are important most recently yeah. he's been raises a lot of doing a lot of but... stuff monetarily for migrants who um are coming over in boats and I'm often mm. drowned. You can't, you can't be saying the same messages that you yeah, were saying. Yeah, it's not the same were... anymore because you, you're not. Yeah. Uh, it reads yeah. different. It's not the same. Yeah, like what you're talking about, Tom, with this this idea of graffiti for poor and minority communities being like a voice for them. It's not what that is anymore, and he can't use mm-hmm. it like that. Mm-hmm. Is my opinion. Yeah. It makes me. It pisses me off. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and it's commodified graffiti. Yeah, and in in a way that is so frustrating to see it's gross for like a, a bunch of different yeah reasons. it's gross yeah. it feels gross and and, and it's weird because i do have still have respect for banksy in a mm-hmm. lot of yeah, ways no, but yeah, it's for sure. it's such a complicated yeah 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 yeah, yeah totally but I, I get what you're saying caroline as well and i do agree mostly thank you yeah y'all are so smart um this is great uh i was just gonna say to to, to bring it more to a positive spin instead you know when graffiti does come from the community that exists there, mm. it can be really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a really interesting interview uh, the New York Times did in 1971, like right at the start of the boom of New York City graffiti, where they interviewed the artist behind the tag Taki183 that had been like all over the subways. And Taki is 17. And as he describes it, quote, I don't feel like a celebrity normally, but the guys make me feel like one when they introduce me to someone. They go, this is him. (laughs) The reporter goes, quote, other teenagers who live on the block are proud of him. He's the king, a youth lounging on a door stoop said. And so I want to end with a silly story of graffiti to a community near and dear to my nerdy heart. Uh, And so for this last story, we're going to jump to Salt Lake City, Utah in the year 1980. 15-year-old Adam Clayton has just sent a letter to Atari, basically asking for brochures and free stuff. Uh, At one point, he says, please hurry with the letter. I'm impatient. (laughs) But then he ends the letter saying, P.S. I have the Atari games and the adventure game program, and I have found something strange. He then describes finding a hidden room in the game that had a message in it that he draws in the letter. I'm going to send the picture to you guys. So this secret room is just an empty square. And in the middle, it says in a pixelated font. Created by a name. Created by Warren Robinette. So this game called Adventure was made by Warren Robinette for Atari. And this is generally considered the first Easter egg in a video game. (gasps) Oh, sweet. That's cute. Something that is now a tradition to put little secrets into games. And you might say, Tom, that's that's a cute story, but it's not, that's not graffiti. And that's what I thought too, but I didn't know the full story. And when I finally did for this topic, I thought, oh, 
that's graffiti. And that's because that letter I read was the first time Atari heard about this Easter egg. Oh, nice. Nice. The first Easter egg in a video game was not a cute little joke. The reason it was hidden is because he did not tell Atari he was doing this. Yeah. That's the that's the reason it was hidden in the first place. It wasn't to be that's cute. That's so it funny. Was, I love that. Mm -hmm. As Robinette would later say in, in an interview, quote, Atari would not give public credit to game designers. Oh. And this is when game designers were like becoming a thing at all, right? So like they're they're building the norms of like, maybe we don't have to credit these guys. They're just fucking, they're just fucking, they're making the thing. So in this interview, Robinette says, This was right after Atari had been acquired by Warner Communications. It was a power play to keep the game designers from getting recognition and therefore more bargaining power. <gasps> in another interview, he said, I thought of it as a self-promotion maneuver. Also, I was pissed off. <laughs> wow. Adventure sold a million units at $25 a piece. Meanwhile, I got a 22000 a year salary, no royalties, Oof. and they never even forwarded any fan mail to me. That's <gasps> shocking. Wow. And so, just before he quit, he tagged his name on the game, and then he left. And the other reason I love this story is because, first of all, of course, it's, it's video game history. I'm going to eat that shit up. But also because it speaks to the spirit of graffiti more than even some modern Banksy's do, right? Like it's like, oh, it's a it's a gun with a flower. Ooh, war is bad. Um, <laughs> it, because it, it 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 checks all the boxes of all the weird things that I've said I loved about graffiti so far. First of all, it's questionably art, and of course you get into the the video game aspect and the digital aspect. Um, it has that wow factor of managing to pull it off once you know the story, and it's a push to fight against obscurity, both against you know the forces in charge, the big wigs, and also the the force of of time itself to be remembered, yeah. right? Like I said, it is now famous for being the first Easter egg. So in some ways, it has achieved Faulkner's dream. It, it is like a Kilroy is here story. So uh, I love that because it shows that graffiti isn't necessarily about spray cans or etching. It's about something far older and more human than that. It's about saying, fuck you, I was here. <laughs> it really is. Uh, to the people in power and to the universe itself. And and I think what's wonderful about that is it can go from like the biggest thing, like the side of a building or an, yeah. an Easter egg in a multi-million dollar game to uh, your desk at school. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like it, it's, yeah. it can be like connecting across that that human feeling to want to like say I was here. Like really can yeah. span across everyone at every time in every medium. Mm -hmm. I really love yeah. digital graffiti in um, the HTML of websites. <laughs> yeah, didn't have time to get into. Oh, wow. Yeah, and let us know in the Discord your favorite graffiti, whether it's digital, whether it's on a school desk, whether it was in Pompeii. Uh, yeah, there's there's so much out there. I really, really love this topic, Tom. I think it's... Yeah. I love anything that speaks to human nature, like, across time, you know? Yeah. And this definitely does. It's... Review corner. God, that was oh a bit... Oh, my God. That was a bit lackluster from me that time. Do you want to try again? No. Or do you want to... Yeah. Oh. I love you, that from you. You get what you get. True. It can't can oh, always yeah. be. Then And then when she really pulls it out, we'll be amazed. We'll yeah. Be like, wow. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, today, today's review comes from Anne Moonchild on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and they say, 
let's learn everything. More like, let's laugh every time. Oh. Oh. Tom, did you write this? <laughs> Comedy. <laughs> Comedy. Who would ever think that I would tear up while hearing someone else tear up while they are reciting the poem, The Two-Headed Calf, on the Science Podcast? Oh, stop. Wait, this was supposed stop. to be about laughter. <laughs> Ella, Caroline, and Tom bring so much infectious enthusiasm, curiosity, and humor to each and every topic that you can't help but be excited with them. Whether you are laughing with Tom about his jokes or about Ella and Caroline's clear distaste of them, <laughs> I, I, can, I can guarantee you will laugh and gasp at least once in every episode. I wish I could gently bully everyone on this rock floating in space into listening to this podcast. Oh. Thanks, pals, for creating this lovely piece of media. Oh, thank also, you, Tom. Pal. You got some good jokes in this week. You should be really proud of me. Are we going to say that every time at the end of the episode to just demean Tom? Do a like, legit <laughs> review. Yeah. Again, the review is the most demeaning part. It's being like, hey, Tom, you look at that. That was actually. really yeah. good. Yeah. Well done. Thank you to that reviewer. And also, I just started tearing up again thinking about the two-headed cop poem just <laughs> fucked up i can't i can't oh oh my god thank you so much Anne, for the kind words any any shout shouts shout outs shout outs yeah i'll do a plug for us we all three of us just guested on creature feature <gasps> oh my god uh, yes hosted by ah! katie golden uh, who had us on talking about all kinds of hey, ways to keep cool in the summer the way animals do. It was, it was a delight. so good. We had such a good time. It's a really great overlap with LLE, that episode. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. should definitely check it out. It's also, I, forget to I forgot to tell Katie this in person, but I remember seeing Creature Feature on the science podcast charts like really early oh, on and being yeah. like, who, are, who the fuck are they? And they were like, we're butting heads with them. And I was like, oh, they're actually very nice. Um, also give a shout. If you are a Max Fund supporter, keep an eye out in yes. your emails or yep. on our the your the secret Discord channel for supporters for a survey going out for what our next bonus episode should be. We're gonna finally yes. get cracking on those. Absolutely. And if you do want to see some of that bonus content and you're not a member over on Maximum Fun, you should go and do that. All of the info to do that is on our website, letslearneverything.com, as well as all of our socials and the link to our Discord server. So you should definitely go and check that out. Caroline, you've gotten so good at that. That was, <laughs> that was so good. Okay. Today, we learned that it has taken a very long time to prove that gravitational waves exist and many, many people to do it but it was worth it. <laughs> we have learned that animals might be lonely. They might not be lonely, but what's clear is that we've caused a lot of that and we need to do something about it. And also human loneliness. And yeah. Carly Rae Jepsen. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and we learned that graffiti is a deeply human thing that we have done for forever probably and we'll keep on doing it sometimes in terrible places sometimes in wonderful places <laughs> and it might be art it might not be but if it means something to you then that's enough Wait. join us next time where we will learn about everything, everything. let's learn everything is a maximum fun podcast hosted and produced by ella hubber tom lunt and caroline roper with editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lunn.
great episode. Was, this is a absolutely bang in. Oh and my really God. varied. Very I was just going to say, we did space, animals, and art. Yeah. Oh my God. That's a full I meal. I feel like that's the perfect, <laughs> so, yeah, literally, a well balanced diet. Of sp- space yeah. animals. The Surgeon General recommends one serving of space, <laughs> one serving of animals, and serving of art. Maximum Fun. A worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.